Welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast, where we enlighten veterinary workers, animal lovers, and pet parents about integrative approaches to veterinary medicine and pet health. Each month, we interview experts in their fields as they share cutting-edge science, clinical wisdom, and inspiration. The Pure Animal Podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Joining us today is Dr. Nicole Rue. We are so proud and grateful to Nicole for becoming our newest ambassador of the Pure Animal team. Prior to being a veterinarian, Nicole completed a Bachelor of Science from Melbourne University, followed by an honours year in Vision Sciences. She then got accepted into Sydney University and completed a Bachelor of Veterinary Science with honours in 2008. After a brief stint working in the UK, she returned to small animal practice in Melbourne, working at Monash Vets. Nicole followed her interest in reproduction and gained her membership with the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists. Along the way, she has also developed an interest in complementary therapies, especially in essential oils. And in 2020, she started her own business called Shy Tiger Natural Animal, which provides vet-approved, all-natural, plant-based health support for dogs. Nicole currently also works and owns Mont Albert Veterinary Surgery in Victoria and is a member of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. We are so excited to have you on the Pure Animal team, Nicole, and we're looking forward to rolling out some fantastic educational content together. How are you today? I'm really well, thanks, Sarah. It's such a privilege to be part of Pure Animal Team. I'm so excited. I love what you guys do. I love talking all things about pet health and I'm really looking forward to what's coming ahead. Oh, us too. We're thrilled to have you on the team. And today we're going to be talking all about the liver and specifically an integrative vet's approach to managing liver health and liver dysfunction. So to get started, let's talk about what are the most common liver conditions you see in your practice. Yeah, it's a good, really good place to start. I think it's quite interesting. I actually think uh, technically, when you, you look at primary liver conditions, it's actually not that common. So I think mm. when you look at the statistics of, of all the sick patients that come into us, probably only 1% or 2% actually have true liver conditions. But I think the the level of subclinical disease or disease that we see in our patients that is not obviously a liver condition but is a secondary problem that's affecting the liver, I think that's really really common uh, mm. and we can go into the reasons why but the liver is just it influences everything to do with the body so it's not a huge surprise I guess that whenever we have a sick patient that there is some level of subclinical disease um, but it's yeah. a really important topic to talk about uh, just because it really does affect our pet's quality of life how the liver is functioning. Yeah, that's right. And I know you mentioned that the pr primary liver conditions are actually quite a low number of patients and they usually would come in quite unwell. But talking about the presence of, say, elevated liver enzymes on a routine blood screen indicating subclinical liver dysfunction, do you tolerate any sort of increase in liver enzymes as an integrative vet um, or are you considering any sort of change there significant and something you want to investigate and manage? 
Yeah, so when we're talking about the liver enzyme tests that we're doing, and, and a lot of pet parents will be used to going, uh, admitting their pets for a dental or something like that, and, and the team will say, do you want to run a pre-anesthetic blood test? Or mm. or if their pets had a, you know, gastro or something, you might run bloods. And there's a few liver-specific enzymes in there, ALT or alanine aminotransferase, AST, ALP, there's a few that are relatively specific for the liver and you might have heard a vet or a nurse over time say oh there's just a mild elevation or yeah. there, there may be some age-related changes and certainly historically I was a conventional vet for many years so I've been a vet for 15 years and I would say at least the first five I was strictly conventional uh, and mm-hmm. then I did a transition it's probably the last sort of five years where I've been pretty heavily integrative and I, I certainly would have said for those first five to, to ten years I would have been that vet that said look there are, it's only mildly above the normal range um, don't worry or we might check it in three to six months but yeah. I wouldn't do anything about it whereas absolutely as an integrative vet I would hand to my heart say that any change in liver enzymes for me is significant because it's telling us that there is altered liver metabolism or liver function or the liver isn't happy and we need to mm. do something about that. We're, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to do something overly dramatic. We might just help support liver function. So we might just provide some antioxidants. We might tweak the food we're doing or a different supplement. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're sending an animal for a CT scan and, and ultrasounds yeah. and everything, but we'll always retest the enzymes Uh yeah. Usually about four to six weeks after. So just to make sure yep. it's not a, a permanent trend. But this um I guess the tolerance of mild liver enzyme elevation. And when we're saying mild, we're generally saying um the the tolerated level in in my my years of what we were kind of taught was anything above two times normal is significant. Under two times normal, it's a bit of a grey zone of, of some people tolerate, some don't, depending. If there's no associated clinical signs, it's kind of a yeah. different story. And and certainly in older patients, there's pretty good evidence that a lot of benign or, or insignificant to a point changes in the liver, like little nodules or little um, degenerate spaces in the liver can can cause an increased production of liver enzymes. So you may have these insignificant elevations, but it's still really important to know if they're insignificant or not, isn't yeah, it? So totally. you still de- yeah. need to do something to investigate and not just excuse it. So it's a very long-winded way of saying, no, I don't tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's good to have the detail. And so you mentioned that you typically would test the bloods twice in a patient that wasn't necessarily presenting with symptoms. So four mm. to six weeks later, but in that interim period, are you implementing some supportive therapies if the dog isn't actually unwell and then rechecking rather than jumping into doing any other diagnostics? So you're sort of delaying further diagnostics until you see that permanent trend. Just yeah, to I would yeah. say the initial step is usually just tweaking what we're what we're doing. So I would always look at the history of a patient. Is it on any medication that might yeah. affect liver function? So are we on some non-steroidals because they're really common in our older patients? Are they on Medicam or you know any sort yeah. of um probably, I probably shouldn't say any sort of brand name there, but you know any of the common non-steroidals that lots of pets have um, for arthritis because that can affect liver function. Steroids, so common, you know, the glucocorticoids, that affects liver function. So if they're on that and we see elevated liver enzymes, 
and they're still asymptomatic, so no symptoms, I might drop the dose back or stop it for a while if I can, depending on what it is. Um, yeah. Or if they're a young patient with elevated liver enzymes, I might explore genetics a little bit. I might put yeah. them on some whole food-based detox um, foods like something like coriander is really good for detoxing the liver. Or oh, I might, right. Yeah, there's lots of different food-based sources. I might up the mushrooms or I might put them on a, a you know, a reputable licensed antioxidant type product. There's lots of different options, but I'll generally do something. I won't just wait and retest. I'll do something okay. to support liver yep. function. And then yep. I test four to six weeks. Now, the four to six yep. weeks is based on how long it can take for the body to recover from a liver insult. So say you've had gastro and you've had toxins from the gut that have gone up to the liver and they've made the liver all sluggish and affected liver function and then you have an elevated liver enzymes. Even though the liver, these enzymes have what we call a half-life or the way they're produced and and regulated and and processed, they've got a half-life. It can still take, and that can be, a couple of days or, or, you know, a few hours. It can still take mm. the liver a couple of weeks to really reset itself. So we tend to wait that period of time before retesting or we're just sort of wasting money and putting the animal for unnecessary tests. But you don't want to wait too long because then you can have allowed a chronic problem to really take off and, and create yeah. permanent changes. So four to six weeks is a sweet spot where we tend to yeah. um, do some support and then retest and see where we're at. As long as they're asymptomatic. If they're symptomatic, then we start all the tests. So we're doing x-rays yeah. and ultrasounds and more functional blood tests. Yeah. Okay. That's very, very clear. Thank you for going through that detail. And so you mentioned that because the liver is so integral to the function of so many different processes in the body, it's often, I guess, an, you know, an affected innocent bystander mm. with lots of other conditions. So what are some of those other conditions that you see that aren't necessarily primary liver disease but can inadvertently affect the liver? Like what are the more common ones? Yeah, I think probably for our pets, without a doubt, it would have to be anything related to the gut. So yeah, okay. any the gut is so closely related to the liver, isn't it? Like they have, they have like, you know, a direct circulatory relationship. Yes. Like they're so closely related. So Anytime you get a leaky gut, uh, so people, a lot lot of humans are familiar with that concept of a leaky gut. We have a similar concept in pets. Uh, You know, lots of pets have like an inflammatory bowel disease type syndrome. Anytime you've got anything like that, you get toxins absorbed from the gut. You end up, like I often think of it, you're sort of sending like sluggish storm water through to the um to the liver rather than nice clean filtered water yeah, like I kind of that's how yeah. I sort of picture it in my head so anytime you're doing that you're going to end up with sluggish liver metabolism and that will cause an elevation in liver enzymes that would absolutely be the primary cause of um, elevated liver enzymes or affected liver function certainly okay. that I see in clinic but um gosh you, you Take your pick, anything, even like stress, so mental health issues, stress, increased steroproduction is enough to affect liver function. Dental disease, and we know 80% of pets over the age of three have dental disease. That's just showering the body with the bacteria. You're altering your gut microbiome. Then you're producing toxins. They go up to the liver. Um, Heart disease, cancer, dementia, obesity, diabetes, like, but certainly the gut is number one. Yep. Okay. And what about primary liver disease that you're seeing most typically? 
Yeah, it's an, it's an issue. So as we said, it's probably only 1% to 2% of patients. I think it's mm. a little bit different between dogs and cats. And I was sort of, I think if I if I really think about it, I could probably count on one hand how many, as a GP, like in, in a general practice setting, on one hand how many pets I see each year in the cats and dogs with true primary liver disease. It's so yeah. uncommon yeah. of the sick patients. Um, but if I'm going to see it, I'll see either, um, especially in cats, you get like an infectious um, or a bacterial cholangia, you know, so you're affecting the bile duct and the liver, so cholangia yes. hepatitis. Um, yep. There's all these tricky terms in the liver. They used to call it triaditis, didn't they? Yeah, triaditis, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, but it's often bacterial, but it can be immune or, or sterile, so it can be just okay. inflammation yeah. rather than bacteria so we we see that a little bit uh there's there's a funny condition cats get the hepatic lipidosis and yes. where if they starve they can turn like into a fatty liver which really almost sends them into liver failure um yeah. so that would be the main thing with the um definitely with it with the cats but again really really uncommon and the dogs not not dissimilar so the the chronic hepatitis um which, which interestingly you can see in the in the young sort of dogs, even two to five years, and I think females are a bit more prone to it. There's quite a few mm. genetic issues with dogs. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of them, but you certainly can. Copper storage diseases. Yeah. There's lots of things that get DNA screened these days. But, um, yeah, I guess just inflammation, just general inflammation in the liver, whether it's bacterial or sterile or not, you know, immune-mediated. So Yeah. And um, and obviously toxins, like direct sort of toxins, you know, that they would be hitting the liver pretty hard. I know mm. in, a, in other countries there's um, a higher likelihood of things like antifreeze toxin and yeah. even some of the mushroom toxicities. What are we seeing most commonly in Australia? Yeah, I think there are quite a few um, ch- chemicals, like even some of your so there's some that target the liver directly, but there's also some that are just processed by the liver and then they end up causing other sort of the, the antifreeze um, is processed, ethylene glycol is processed by the liver, but it ends up causing kidney failure and stuff, doesn't it? So, but there's some yeah. of the algae. We we have some algae in Australia, like some of the blue-green algae, yeah. not, not a yep. Melbourne thing, that's for sure. Um, xylitol, <laughs> even though it affects glucose, yeah. so it can cause really low glucose, that can still... Um, affect the liver as well, so they're probably um, big ones that we that we worry about. There's some, I think, lots of the um, some of the plant toxicities can affect liver function. Rarely send them into liver failure or anything like that. Yeah, uh, okay. but certainly, I think one of the main issues we get the pets into to vomit so quickly is because we are worried about liver function, isn't it? So yeah. you don't want the liver processing those toxins. Yep. 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 No, it's good sometimes to actually remind ourselves of why we why do you induce vomiting straight away with the toxicity? Yeah. Well, this is actually why because I think you, you sometimes become probably almost um, you know practiced by by just the sort of pattern recognition a lot of the times, particularly in a busy practice that sees toxicities more frequently, and it's good to remind yourself of you know why we are doing these various treatments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Before we move on from this intro section, just lastly wanting to touch a little bit more on the more common medications. I know you mentioned non-steroidals and steroids, but how do they actually impact the liver in a negative way? 
Yeah, and the other one I would add to that that's really common is um, any of the anticonvulsants, so the seizure, the epileptic uh, dogs. Yeah. So, so they'll yeah. often on um, phenobarbitone is really common and that, that affects yeah. it too. They, I think some of it's not well understood, I would have to say, but definitely with the steroids, um, it affects the the body's drive to store glycogen, which is glucose gets stored in the liver as glycogen. And it's like driving this glycogen. Oh, there go the dogs. It's um, sorry about that in the moment. It's That's driving okay. the so the steroids are driving this glycogen glycogen storage, and it basically causes the liver cells to swell. It's like you sort of um, you're kind of picturing like a water balloon that's just filling up and filling up, yeah. filling, and then it almost just bursts. So you get this right. vacuolar like vacuolar hepatopathy. So yes. you get vacuoles like a vacant space, isn't it? So, um, yeah. And they they call it like a glycogen-like vacuolar hepatopathy or a steroid okay. hepatopathy. So that's yeah. sort of one of the ways um, that it can do it. But, it, yeah, all the drugs are basically just affecting – they're making the this, the – they can they can do lots of things. They can just make the membrane of the cells just a bit leaky, a bit like a leaky gut, and then that sort of yeah. affects it's the way it metabolizes and functions. It's just affecting liver function in lots of different ways. Yeah, sure. And I imagine, you know, over the long term or with high doses, the liver's just having to work overtime as well to metabolize these drugs. Yeah, definitely. And the good look at the yeah. good thing about it is the liver's really like it can bounce back pretty well. Um, I think there's yes. a lot of the times it's a little bit well, it's not like the kidneys in the sense that the kidneys can't bounce back, but it's in similar in the sense that you have to have a really high loss of the organ before you actually see clinical signs. Like they're pretty resilient little things. Um, and the good thing with the liver is that you can blast it with a lot of these things and it has a capacity to detoxify and to get itself back and you can get liver health back. Um, a lot of it's yeah. reversible. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. That's really promising. Gives yeah. a lot of hope, yeah, compared to some organs that, you know, that aren't as regenerative. Um, I know, I know. Yeah. Poor, poor kidneys are not a good one, are they? The poor kidneys are the poor brain. No, <laughs> I, I know. know. Um, so apart from detoxification, which we're sort of mainly focused on and you mentioned glycogen storage, just briefly, mm. what are some of the other main functions that the liver plays in the body? Yeah, I think when I sort of think of the liver, I think of it as um, – getting all the, I guess, getting everything that we process each day. So whether we're absorbing food from the gut, whether we're absorbing anything from the environment, and it takes everything that the body brings in and it decides whether it wants to change it, so it breaks it down and changes it into something else, whether it wants to hold on to it and store it for later or whether it wants to get rid of it. So it really is the master of just deciding what we want to do with everything. Mm. And it's really actively involved in protein fat and carbohydrates so all of our energy sources it has an influence on everything it's almost like what doesn't it do really then compared yeah, to like yeah. what, what it does to, I think there's like 1500 biomechanical functions or something wow. it's just it's it's amazing the liver it just yeah. has an influence on absolutely everything yeah I mean it's amazing how much it does yet you can lose quite a significant amount of liver function without all of these processes being too affected until it's you know quite end stage absolutely and then also what I find really interesting with it is that it's amazing even not just losing function but it's amazing how much the body tolerates the inefficiencies of it and amazing how humans and pets 
walk around with a really sluggish, poorly functioning yeah. liver and, and people are like, oh, I just don't have any energy or, yeah. uh, you know, I just I feel just a bit queasy or ill or there's so many signs that lots of people and pets are, are dealing with on a day-to-day basis that are probably associated with a poorly functioning liver and that if we all had this magic recipe of, of how our individual liver functions best because everyone's a little bit different and all of our pets are a little bit different. It'd be just so interesting if we could all function optimally, wouldn't it? But it's such a complex uh, it's such a complex organ that it's so yeah. difficult to to figure out how to get the individual to function properly. And I think one day we'll get better uh, testing of it. I think that's what, and I'm sure that's what we'll go into, but one day we'll get a more effective way of really testing liver function to more yeah. to a finer detail, whereas now we've got, that considering how complex the organ is, we, we have quite basic tests for it and it's really hard yeah. to pinpoint the the function of it, not just the anatomy. Like we can we yeah. can diagnose a lot of anatomical issues issues with the liver, but we really struggle to diagnose a lot of functional issues with the liver, don't we? Yeah, well it's really just the bile tolerance test that's the the only one, isn't it? Yeah, the bile acid tolerance test. That's it. That's pretty much yeah. it. And I know yeah. in, um, and I don't I'm not sure in pets, but I have heard in humans, and I haven't seen it in pets, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but they do um urine bile acids now, not just blood. Balances. Mm, okay. Yeah. Have you have you heard about in pets? I, I haven't heard about it. I haven't. It might have not even be Australian, but I was just thinking that would be really interesting with um, like litter screening. You know how you get. I remember when yeah. I was a repro vet back in the day, we used to get litters of puppies um, and trying to get blood out of six week old oh puppies that are so excited yeah. without trying to traumatize them. Like you, yeah. you want them to enjoy being the vet, all of a sudden you've got to get blood for like yeah. postprandial bile acids. It's um, it, you know, that's not a nice process. So if you could just get the urine bile, the acid, urine would be easy. Yeah, so they're probably so excited that they're just weeing everywhere anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Be easy to get. Um, I know. It'd well, be so good. That's such a nice segue. You just starting to bring up some of the sort of vaguer symptoms, such as you know, general malaise and nausea mm. and things, which can be you know typical of so many different conditions, but obviously. Mm liver health liver um unwell liver what are some of the more specific signs that we see in relation to liver disease other than so those I think, sort of yeah, general ones good, the general ones yeah and the um, weight loss and, and things like that too, yes. i think there's a, the probably the most famous one that everyone knows about is the jaundice so the yeah. signs of jaundice so when you've got the yellow mucous membrane so you can see that when you lift the dog's lip and you look at their gums or yeah. you can see when you pull back the whites of their eyes or even sometimes some dogs with pale ears, even the ears can look a little bit yeah. yellow, can't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's um, that's when you're basically, for better description, that's when your bile duct's a bit blocked and your bilirubin levels are creeping up in the blood. So that's probably the most specific sign of the liver, I would say. Another um, really specific one is when you you can get neurological signs with liver, can't you? So when you've got like the yes. increase in ammonia, like the when it's not being converted to urea by the liver, um, you get like the and it's really toxic. You get this toxins build up and it affects your brain function, and you get these dogs that are just like um, like oh, some of them are just like staring blankly or head pressing and doing yeah, all sorts I of things. Yeah, remember that from yeah. 
And I think reproduction animals can quite often get that from eating different toxins too. Some of the plant toxins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, but I mean, that's so uncommon to see in general practice. One of the common ones I would say if I'm seeing liver disease is polyuria and polydipsia. So that's excessive Mm. urination, excessive thirst. And for anyone that's trying to calculate that at home, it's excessive thirst is 100 mils per kilo per day. So you times so 100 that? by their body weight. So I've got four kilogram dogs, little griffin. So it's for if they Cute. were drinking more than 400 mils a day, that's considered excessive. Um, but I sort of talk to a lot of clients and I think if you've got a sudden change in drinking habits, that's often enough for me to definitely trigger um, looking at blood tests and things. So oh, you, you classically think of your kidneys, but you absolutely can see it in liver disease too. Yeah, okay. Um, what's the – sorry to put you on the spot with this one, but what's the actual yeah. mechanism of that with liver disease? Is it just due oh, to – like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is putting me on the spot, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> if that's okay, we can we get should. back to it. Yeah, we need to – obviously we'll, we'll put a little marker next to that as something to look into because I was trying to think just then, is it because there's a an increase in some of the toxins in the blood which is leading to – the kidney having to yeah I don't know <laughs> just, just affect your ADH yeah, yeah I mean it's probably quite complicated PUPD um, is like PUPD is really common in a lot of diseases isn't yeah. it um, yeah like I would diabetes imagine. So and, yeah. when it's um when it when it's sort of at its like really end stage and you've you've got reduced urea I mean, that's pretty hardcore, like liver disease, and that's really end stage. And that does in – I know urea influences the concentrating ability of the kidneys. So that would be like one of the end stage ones. Um, But otherwise your – I don't know, the the stress, the cortisol levels are going to to affect it. Um, There could be multiple different mechanisms. Yeah, I think there'd be lots of different – lots of different – reasons it's going to influence all your aldosterone concentrations it's probably going to influence it a lot of ways yeah, yeah we probably yeah. The, blood the glucose PPD, and everything yeah yeah it's gonna it'll it'll influence your adh and everything i don't know exactly how but it will no i know i'm sorry <laughs> no, no it's i'm putting it's you on the spot but it, no it's not look i don't it's not a bad thing to um to discuss and, and realize that we don't like, There's gaps. <laughs> we don't have the answer to everything, do we? Like yeah, we just that's right. Like it's just, it's just, you know, life as a vet and your, your human GP or your your um, your GP vet is not going to know every, the answer to everything. No. You'll be able to explain absolutely everything in life. So it's, yeah, no, no I'm I'm all good with it. There's no, um, <laughs> you know, there's so many things I don't know, and I'll often have really quite interesting discussions with with pet owners in, in clinic and I often learn lots from them about everyone's got their different areas of interest and knowledge anyway, That's don't they? Right. Yeah. yeah. And gosh, like I think you can't hold everything in your mind, but as long as you know where to find the answers, then yes. that's, you know, that's all anyone can expect of you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we, like as much as we're, we're wary of, of pet owners Googling and things, we, we all Google stuff all the time too. I guess it's just the joy of having your, your science background. We know which bits to trust off Google and that. <laughs> that's right. A bit better, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Usually something with .org or .edu at the end is a little more trustworthy in my mind yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true, or true, .gov. True. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, look, I'm going to jump ahead because I think this sort of makes sense in how we're approaching the chat today. But let's talk mm. a little bit about the diagnostic pathway that you would typically take um, in your clinic. Yeah, perfect. And this is um, an interesting one because I think a lot of people are quite, a lot of pet parents are quite familiar with blood tests and, and a lot of the testing we do for liver health. So definitely, without a doubt, your uh, quite routine blood tests are the first step for diagnosing liver disease. So we were talking about the the specific um, blood, the enzymes, the liver enzymes, so yeah. ALT, alanine, aminotransferase, um, AST, aspartate, aminotransferase, ALP, uh, alkaline phosphatase and GGT, but certainly ALP and ALT are our classic ones that we think of with pets and they you see them on your routine biochemistry so your your routine blood screening which is really good so that's a really good monitoring system and and with every um, part or every enzyme or everything you're measuring on a blood test you have a normal range so we're looking for things that are either above the normal range which we're generally looking for liver enzymes except the one thing that we're looking for below is the urea which we're talking about if that's yeah. below the the reference range for liver so certainly the blood tests are a really good screening tool. The The downside for the blood tests is they're not always perfectly specific for liver disease, are they? So you've got your ALP, for example, but that can be elevated in a puppy because it's also found in the bone as well as the liver, isn't it? So it's not yeah, necessarily telling you. Yeah, it's not you. as specific. Yeah. It isn't. It isn't. So you often are looking for a pattern of change or you might, like say if your ALP and your ALT is up and your bilirubin's up as well, then that points more to the liver, whereas yes. if it's just your ALP and ALT or just your ALP and not your ALT, you might, and it's a puppy, well, maybe not. So it's just putting yeah. everything together. So that's definitely the first step. Um, and then if I have a concern on with elevated liver enzymes on a blood test and the patient is symptomatic, so if they've if they've got uh, you know if they're jaundiced or if they've got um, any sort of PPD or something else like that, then I'll either do some screening um, imaging. So I'll take I might take an X-ray, uh, which will it won't necessarily tell me anything specific about the liver unless I'm looking for a tumor. So if, sometimes you can see a mass effect in the on the X-ray yeah. if I'm looking. You can get an enlarged liver silhouette or if I'm looking for just general screening for secondary cancers or things, I'll take a, a an X-ray. Don't panic if you've had us for an X-ray, though. They're always looking for cancer. I don't want to scare people off just in case you've had <laughs> us for an X-ray. Um, and the other thing we'll do, which is a bit more sensitive but is a higher skill level, is an ultrasound, isn't it? So yes. we're ultrasounding. And the benefit with an ultrasound is that you can look for the – you're looking at the, the liver kind of texture so you can see if it's got – um, a mass in it as well, but you can also see if the bile duct's blocked, or you could see yeah. if part of the liver looks normal but part looks abnormal. Um, so you can look for blood flow. You can look if it's got uh, if it looks really mottled, or if it looks really what we call hyperechoic, or looks really bright, like it might have an infection or something in it. So, and and the other thing we can do with the liver is we can then use the ultrasound with with. So with the liver ultrasound, we can put a needle in and get a sample yeah. potentially if we if we are concerned about a cancer. It's not that accurate if you're looking at an infection or inflammation liver, but it's a it's not too bad if you're looking for a cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just pretty non-invasive at least, isn't it? It's probably worth a go. Um, if we're looking more at liver function, 
the ultrasound and the x-rays are probably not going to tell me a lot unless no. I'm looking for abnormal blood circulation. Um, yeah. And then I might go to more specific blood tests, which look at function, which is what you were talking about before with the bile yeah. acids. So, and we were mentioning with the puppies. So the bile acids uh, reflect the, um, like the circulation between the, the gut and the liver what we call yep. the enterohepatic or the, yeah, the circulation be- between them. Um, so yep. if you've got, uh, if you're born with extra ducts here and there or if you're born with an um, abnormal flow, you're going to have abnormal bile acid levels. And um, if you're looking at poor liver function from cancer or from an infection, you might have elevated bile acids too. And you do tend to see elevated bile acids before you see the jaundice. So it's it's sort of you can pick up things earlier I guess which mm-hmm. is and it's not it's not invasive either which is really nice yeah um, other things we might do if we have access to it is something like a CT scan so that's yeah. going to be more sensitive for it than an x-ray um, but but I guess the the long and the short of it is it even as a conventional or integrated vet they're pretty similar testing initially yeah. isn't it yeah. to try and get a yeah. diagnosis yeah no absolutely so I guess we get to a point now in the the case management timeline where Mm. perhaps a conventional vet and an integrated vet might start to differ and that's when we get to to approaches to managing whatever you're seeing in your diagnostics or if you're if you haven't found anything but you're just wanting to support the liver so let's dive into this I know this is going to be a lot more fun to talk about in many ways Uh, the role of the diet any sort of supplements um yep I would love to hear your approach to to this side of things yeah, for sure. It's one of my favourite topics to talk about. So <laughs> so I think um, I like to – I kind of like to get pet parents to just take a step back at when I'm talking about the liver or even the gut really and just take a step back from everything they've been told and from everything they know and from what their neighbours told them, what their vets told them, what anyone's told them and just take a step back and think about it logically. And if you were going to want to support your – body and you want your body to work optimally, what's going to be the best way to look after it? Is it going to be to feed your body, whether they're human or pet, a highly processed diet? Or is it going to be to feed your body whole food, good quality nutrients? Um, and and I think you can probably see where I'm going with this, but you just it's just yeah. absolutely common sense to me that diet is going to have a massive role in how the body functions. It's just, yeah. it, it can't be more common sense. Like you don't actually need to provide, I don't even need science-based evidence. You know, I don't need a double-blinded study, even though they're absolutely coming out in droves in the last few years, which is just amazing to see. I think there was a study out recently that it just even showed the bioavailability of food for fresh food for pets we've now been able to prove it scientifically that it's better than than ultra processed diet so How it's so, so nice that the, the yeah. evidence is finally catching Science up Science is catching up yeah yeah for me it's just absolutely common sense you need to provide the body with good uh good whole food options to allow the liver to function properly so Interestingly, the liver uh, needs really good quality protein because your amino mm-hmm. acids or the little, you know, the little parts of the, the protein, yep. they're the building, it's better, just going. <laughs> the building blocks 
they, they're really needed by the liver for all processing. So the liver works in like it's two phases that w- when it brings things in, it, it breaks it all down and then in its second phase, it builds it up whether it's going to send it to waste or to store it. So to do these functions, to break things down and to build it up again, it needs these really beautiful, good quality whole foods and, and it's not dissimilar to that, what I was sort of saying before, like sending muddy water, like just yeah. giving – putting rubbish into your liver, rubbish in, rubbish out, or yeah. or if you're giving these really poor quality proteins or um, really high-processed synthetic versions of minerals and vitamins, it, the, the body's just not going to work efficiently. And if it can't work efficiently, it gets really congested. And so you might then have um, – all these synthetic versions of what the body needs. And so the the phase one is like that that where it's trying to break everything down. It's it's really sluggish and it's trying to get it done, but it's really struggling. So that then you're just banking things up and then these toxins that are waiting to go into phase two, they're just gonna start going back into the blood because they're just giving up waiting in the queue. Um, and then even if you're still then providing that rubbish in phase two or or you're giving it a a synthetic diet synthetic vitamins that the body can't even absorb that nutrient so then it's got to go and find a you know a plan b somewhere else some other rubbish and then it's even slower again everything just becomes so sluggish so for me absolutely whole foods good quality diets um that are balanced you know we're talking about balance we're not talking about just feeding chicken and rice and hoping that you're going to provide better food for your pet than the the bag of kibble because that's not that's not going to happen. You're devoid of like 17 yeah. nutrients doing that. We're talking about balanced whole food diets. They're absolutely the the number one key to to good liver function in my mind. There's there's no supplement or anything that can beat a really good quality diet. Um, but yeah, yeah then if that. we're talking about supplements, it's a it's a whole another beast. But um, does that make sense with diet? You're, yeah, you're, so... I'm sure you're on the same page with that. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. No, I, I love it and I completely agree with you. And I, I often think, I mean, gosh, you know, it's only been in the last sort of five years that I've thought differently about diet for pets. But mm. I often think now of, you know, a pure kibble diet being the equivalent of a child just having, um, you know, a fortified cereal for breakfast, lunch and dinner and all snacks. And yeah, I can't absolutely. even imagine... Like I don't know why people think of pets as so different to people anymore and I just can't even imagine feeding my children that. <laughs> like they don't I don't think they've ever really eaten cereal for any meal in their life rather than five meals a day every day of their life. Um anyway, exactly. so yes, I'm very very on board with that, but something I do want to circle back to which I actually admit I really don't know enough about and I'm sure many people listening don't either is um the phases of liver detoxification. So phase one and phase two you mentioned. So do you mind just in kind of, you know, brief terms describing exactly what those phases are and what happens in those two phases? Okay, very good. I'm going to do this in quite brief terms because I'm not a... Yes, um, please. I'm yeah. certainly not a specialist in this. I'm going to do it in, in really <laughs> no, that's basic fine. sort of ways. So good. The, the way the liver works is it has two phases. So things come into the body... The liver processes it and then it decides it. Well, we're saying at the start, decides what to do, whether it changes it, stores yep. it, excretes it. 
And the way it does it is it brings it in and it breaks it down. That's what we call phase one. It's yep. using enzymes to break down the products and metabolism into, I guess, what you could, you go from toxic to less toxic. So it's breaking it yep. down to make it safer for the body. So again, yep. if you had, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stop getting sidetracked and distracted, but if you imagine you have a leaky gut and you're then sending these half digested things from the gut that should have been digested better and they're coming to the liver and the liver's like, well, that's just a lot to break down. Now I'm having to do five steps rather than one. So just, again, it sort of shows you how that phase one can be overwhelmed. Or if you're eating a lot of sugar or starch or... Yeah, fructose. um, Yeah, fructose. And so then that they actually can directly influence the enzymes that are doing their best to break stuff down and they're like, you know what, I'm just going to make you go one kilometre an hour instead of 10 kilometres an hour. That's my job. I'm just going to make you really sluggish or I'm just going to make you not be able to do it properly. So there's lots of things that can influence this phase one. So rather than ending up with beautiful um, detoxified um, you know, or you sort of these byproducts of this metabolism rather than having these neat particles that the body can then send off and do what it wants to in the phase two, it's kind yeah. of half done if, if you're yep. sort of sending rubbish in. So that's yep. phase one. And so at the end of phase one, I kind of picture it like this conveyor belt where everything's come in. Then of <laughs> phase one, then phase two has like, you know, seven different pathways. So you you kind of pick your conveyor belt to go on. And so yeah. then depending on what the body wants to do with it, it then will add what it wants to it. So they call that conjugation where you're basically adding something yes. to one of the, the end products of phase one. It'll go on its yep. conveyor belt, add something else to it, and then it'll either go and store it or send it out to be excreted in stools yep. or in your, through your kidney. It'll decide what it wants to do with it. So you need enzymes to do all these, the beautiful phase one and phase two. Um, and you really need, and we'll get into this a little bit more, a lot of antioxidants to influence the liver function. So antioxidants really are the king of the liver working yep. properly because as you're breaking things down and people will be really familiar with this term of free radicals. If yep. You've heard of a lot of free radicals and we, yep. I know as a female we hear of it in skincare and stuff um, and <laughs> yes. that's what causes aging. So as you're breaking things down, a lot of the time your body, this chemical reaction that breaks it down is releasing free radicals and then these free radicals just go and do damage to cells. They can kill cells. They can slow other things down, they can affect reactions. And if you don't then mop up these free radicals with antioxidants, then we're in trouble. So, And that's where the liver can get into a lot of trouble if it doesn't have enough antioxidants in the body to then make the whole system work efficiently and properly. And and I think, you know, that can, we can lead to cancer and all sorts of issues um, when there's not enough of that that's going on. So, yeah, it is really complicated, but basically it's just a, a – I think of it as breaking down phase one and building up phase two and it's just deciding what it wants to do with it, but it needs its antioxidants and its amino acids, it needs vitamins, It's it needs a really nice diet to, to do it properly. Yeah. yeah, so that's obviously why, you know, a fresh whole foods diet which contains fruits and vegetables which are high in natural antioxidants supports the liver so well because – Absolutely. You know, comparing a diet like that to a – you know, to a complete dry food diet would be 
you wouldn't even they would be like comparing apples and oranges in terms of the exactly exactly and the other yeah. thing that's interesting with the um the dry food diets and and i guess modern society and things is that even toxins can influence the liver so heavy metals um, mold, all sorts yeah. of other different toxins that we get in in bags of kibble after it's being stored, or um, yeah. just around the home, that can influence the liver as well, and that can yeah. make the enzymes a bit dysfunctional. So there's there's a lot of things that aren't even just diet, and so even if you've got your pet and you you know and you can absolutely give yourself a pat on the back, I'll give you a pat on the back for feeding your pet a really beautiful fresh food diet. You can still need to support the liver. It's not quite as easy as just having ticked that box because we live in modern society where people are mopping the floors with, you know, with some sort of fragrance and the dogs are walking on it and and licking their feet or, um, you know, they live in the inner city where there's smoke around, they're jumping in and out of the car where there's petrol um, and the dogs and our cats are just, they they get into so much contact with all these environmental toxins. So I wish a yeah. diet was enough. It would be easy, but it's it's not quite enough. We still need to support liver function too, don't we? Yeah, well, let's let's jump into that then. So obviously antioxidants are king, as you mentioned. Mm. So what are the sort of main antioxidants that you reach for? Like where, where would you find them? Yeah, so the one that I reach for with um, when I'm looking at the whole base foods is I'm looking for foods that support glutathione production. So that's more my my food master antioxidant. So I'll look at um, mushrooms. Um, then I'll look at um, it's even um, in eggs and and chicken and turkey um, because they make it from cysteine and methionine, the amino acids. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's that's definitely my favourite food based one. If I'm talking about um, supplements for my antioxidants, then my classic ones are um, SAMI or the, the S-adenosylmethionine. <laughs> I, yep. I, I, I always have to read that one. It's such a – there's so many, <laughs> like, long words in oh, liver, no. aren't they? We Chemistry. just call it SAMI. So that yes. SAMI has amazing research with the liver. And, and I'm so proud of SAMI because SAMI has been able to – move from the integrative space to the conventional space, hasn't it? So I, I think so one nice. thing that I love with the liver and being an integrative vet is there's actually some supplements that have made their way, there's two, that have made their way from conventional, in, sorry, from integrative into conventional. So, yeah. and and you'll find them in your emergency clinic and, and everywhere and, and the conventional vets are using them as, as they would an antibiotic or a steroid, which is just brilliant. So Sammy has that much research, that many papers on it as an antioxidant that you will, if you have a dog that um, or a cat that has elevated liver enzymes and you put it on Sammy, there are that many cases that um, will it will reduce the the liver yeah. enzymes and it, and look it is a glutathione precursor so we're looking at things that are increasing um, the antioxidant production in the body so yeah Sammy is is just a brilliant um, supplement that I'm a big fan of and then yep. the other one that's made it into the conventional space is um, milk thistle yes or, or silymarin yep. yes so I agree I think it's wonderful that Sammy in particular has you know, has such a pride of place on many conventional vets' shelves. And I know it's often used IV for cases of acute toxicities. Mm. Um, maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm not sh- I'm not so sure if it's used as widely here, but I know in the States it's probably used a lot because I think they probably see a lot more toxicities at certain times of year than we do. But, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the point 
I would add was um, would just be to always make sure if people are um, listening to this and wanting to source um, these ingredients to make sure that they are buying a bioavailable form because I know particularly milk thistle, it's quite challenging. The bioavailability could be quite challenging. Um, mm. So I would just add that in as a as a little tip there. But, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're not very yeah. stable, are they? The yeah, they're tricky really, little things. Yeah. Sammy's a pain in the rear end. It's really <laughs> not very stable at all. So you have to be, I think, almost even almost more than milk this or Sammy's one, you've really got to be careful where you're sourcing yeah. it from. It's not It's not one to buy on eBay, is it? Um, no, you, that's right. Yeah, you definitely want to. And the problem with thing, with a lot of supplements is that you have the potential to do more harm than good. So, yeah. you know, if you look at even fish oils, if they're rancid, you'll cause more harm oh, than good. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. need to it, – it is really – I know it is more expensive sometimes to get the good quality products, but they're there for a reason. Um, yeah. And it's really important to use really reputable brands with, with supplements. But definitely, without a doubt, Sammy and um, Milk Thistle or Silimarin are definitely be my, my supplements that I used. And yeah. there's a few – um, there's a few registered products in the in the pet space, which is amazing. So I would definitely go to registered products first because yep. they've got the the evidence behind them and you can trust them. Um, yep. So that's where I tend to go. And and with regards to my liver patients, it, I I'm I'm an integrative vet, but I do deal with pet parents from both like that go through the whole spectrum. So yep. full conventional, they want their prescription kibble right through yep. to full holistic that won't even touch an antibiotic if I, you know, I would yeah. have to bribe them to get their dog if it, if it really needed yeah. it. So I'll deal yeah. with the full spectrum, which which I really enjoy because I can definitely. Yeah. You can just tailor um, things. I can, you can, you can. Liver disease is really one that you can tailor and, and I definitely believe in the integrative space and in, in um, for liver especially, it's it's got, you know, there's, many drugs and many supplements and whole foods and everything that really it's where you get the best result in my mind. Yeah, nice. And are there other herbs or, you know, probiotics or anything else that you tend to include pretty commonly or do you sort of just tailor every plan to the individual? Yeah, it is a good point. I guess it's back to that whole like sending dirty water to the liver um, philosophy, there's probably no point, well, there is no point, in spending a fortune and doing anything and everything for the liver when you haven't sort the gut out first, is there? Yeah. So definitely the gut's first and we have spoken about the, the diet. Um, so definitely diet. And if I had a liver patient, I will tailor the diet a little bit uh, more, like rather than me just saying, oh, feed a whole food diet, I'd, I'd be a little bit more specific than that. I'm going to um, do use things that are a bit liver friendly. So um, we know copper is not necessarily a good friend of the liver. It can mm-hmm. cause um, issues with it. So I want uh, um, copper's copper's sort of antagonist or it's it's opposing forces zinc isn't it so I want to die yeah. nice and high in zinc and I was actually interesting I was reading a um sorry side track reading a paper recently that showed in humans that had high copper low zinc which is what mm. the opposite to what we want with liver that um they had quite poor mental health so, so interesting. Really interesting I've I've just been exploring this myself <laughs> And, um, yeah, and um, from my experience and from what I've learned recently, the 
the aim is to have the zinc and the copper ratio one to one. But often what okay. you see yeah. is, yeah, often what you see is that low zinc, high copper. So are you testing zinc and copper levels in your patients or are you just making sure they get more zinc in their diet knowing that, you know, the zinc deplete, depleted diets are fairly common out there? Yeah, I tend to, again, it depends on the client. The problem with a lot of, well, the problem with the, the tests overall is that um, everything's expensive, isn't it, to do because we don't have yeah. Medicare, so you have There's to no really look at it. Yeah, yeah and the, the testing for for things like zinc and copper are not as reliable on routine blood work, so we tend to have to send off quite um, sophisticated tests yeah. and they tend to be to different labs and it gets a lot more expensive. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no, I would say no. Here's yep. the answer to that. I don't yep. tend to routinely test it. Um, and even to the point where I've given I've given pets zinc supplements without Yeah, I was testing. wondering that. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, I Just for a short before. period, sort of like three yeah, months or something? Yeah, it yeah. depends on the case. Um, yeah. And I guess if they're more of a classic breed, you know, the zinc-responsive derm- yeah. um, skin conditions and stuff, it's a little bit, yeah. little bit different. But, yeah, yeah I, I tend to not worry as much about that. Um, so, but yeah. then I'll, what I'll do is I'll pick lower copper like meats and, and fish and stuff that are known to be quite low in copper. So okay. some like some of the white fish I might put um, for a liver patient. Um, yep. So, yeah, I guess a lot of the food and stuff that, that pets get or that even some of the, um, you know, the cattle and everything that are fed before they get to our pets, a lot of them can have a lot of synthetic copper in the feeds and everything like that. Yeah, so we okay. have to be a bit careful. So I definitely steer clear of synthetic. Of, of kibble and stuff with synthetic, potentially synthetic copper in it. So I would yeah. go something like a white fish um, and yep. then the other foods that I'll include would be known for their antioxidant um, powers and, and just general sort of immune support, so a good old friend turmeric. Um, yep. And then I'll, I'll use um, artichokes known, dandelion. Yep. There's a yep. few other, um, even a bit of green tea, that non-caffeinated sort of green tea. Um, yep. As I said, coriander is really well known for its ability yep. to, to detoxify. So there's lots of um, yeah, whole food sources like that that um, that are quite sort of well known and still pretty pretty mainstream, I would say. They're, yeah. not, um, they're not even too holistic. So um, I, I personally use a few essential oils as well. So using the essential oils in the diet? Uh, no, topically. just topically. So, yeah, yeah, because I guess the liver's so close to the skin as well. I mean, yeah. there is one that Copaiba um, that works on the endocannabinoid system that you can put in food, but I tend to just use okay. them um, topically as well, just general yeah. anti-inflammatory support. There's, um, But certainly um, that sometimes we'll use like the whole milk thistle plant rather than just a milk yep. thistle supplement, um, yep. dandelion root and global artichoke. They'd be your, your common ones and then your curcumin or your turmeric, like the active version of turmeric. Um, there's some um, and then your, your other supplements that we're talking about with Sammy and stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's just tweaking the, the whole foods and then the supplements are, um, I guess, what we're doing. But the probiotics-wise, I think that's really important because yeah. especially if you're trying to get a pet off kibble, um, their gut biome is just so – the dysbiosis is quite incredible, isn't it? Their, their gut biome yeah. is just not diverse. It needs a really good probiotic support and a prebiotic support yeah. and digestive yeah. enzyme support. It fibers. just needs a whole suite yeah. to try and fix up the yeah. leaky gut. So I'll, I'll work on the leaky, leaky gut 
even with um, – there's some really good supplements on the market these days, even with glutamine and things in it, just to, yeah. to tighten up the gut bef- while we're working on the liver as well. Nice. And are you, um, is this a, you know, this sort of protocol that you're recommending, which sounds so beautiful, by the way, is this a forever, (laughs) is this a forever protocol that people stay on? Or, I mean, obviously the whole food diet would be, but in terms of the additional supplements, are you having them on this, um, you know, until you reassess and then you're sort of weaning them off some of the supplements or is this something that you like to recommend, you know, for every older patient who just needs some more liver support? How do you sort of typically um, utilise the protocol? That's a good question, isn't it? I think for me, most of my sick patients, I'll put them through like a leaky gut kind of protocol, restore that, and that tends to only be one to two months usually and then I'll move from a restoration protocol um so as i've removed the toxins in the diet or the drugs and we restore the gut i'll I'll fix that and then we'll move to a maintenance for a while and that would be rather than being with your glutamine and all these leaky gut sort of supplements i'll move to more just a prebiotic probiotic digestive enzyme support and i'll do like a round of that whether we stay on that or not long term depends on the patient Often, um, often we will if they've been quite sick, um, but often we won't as well. It depends on the blood work and the client too and, and financial constraints. Not everyone can afford to stand supplements long term yeah, too. Yeah. And I guess I would yeah. probably rather them invest in the diet if they couldn't afford the yes. supplements and downgrade the diet yeah. and afford the supplements. So yeah. um, there's that. But the liver, if the liver's had a really nasty insult, it tends to need liver support long term. But again, that um, is a little bit different to probiotics. I find probiotics, they're like transient. So they're in and they're out. If you don't give them every day, they're in and they're out. You know what I mean? Whereas with liver support, it's a little bit different. You can often get away once you've hit a stable, nice liver function. You often get away with doing it a few times a week to maintain good liver function still if you need to sort of save a bit of money or you're just really happy with how the patient's going. So it's all about monitoring the liver function long term and um, how well the pet's doing clinically. A lot of my really good holistic um, pet parents are so in tune with their pets more than I am and I trust yeah. their judgment. They know where their yeah. pet's luggage they know how much they're drinking. They know their energy. And they're just, gosh, they're amazing, some of the guardians yeah, out there. They're so just attuned. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, it sounds it's all like the teamwork, really. Wonderful clients to work mm-hmm. with who are really open to all of this, which is so nice. And I'm sure it's going to become more and more common, you know, yeah. as our integrative veterinary medicine grows. Um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. Um, they just feel so – I'm just always blown away how grateful they are that you – when you actually involve them, they just they just yeah. want to be part of it, don't they? Yeah. And they want to be included. And yeah. and it's helpful for me because they know their, they know their pets and they often know something I don't know. They'll, they'll have done so much research on yeah, some have, ingredient. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, that yeah. makes sense. That's our tr- You know, well, well, let's look at it together and I trust your judgment. Yeah. Let's put it, let's put it in as part of the options and they'll, or they'll have found some lab in the middle of America that tests this exact thing that we need to, you know, then. <laughs> Their knowledge is incredible because yeah. they're so dedicated. They're so, so dedicated. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of my favourite things about integrative medicine is working with the pet parents. They're, it means we're, it's very hard to do a 15-minute consult, but they're <laughs> so dedicated to their pet's um, quality of life and, and the 
the chronicity of the management, I find a lot easier working with pet parents like that because they're so in tune with their pets. Yeah, no, it sounds so nice. Oh, it's been such a nice chat today. I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I think I think we probably need to start thinking about wrapping up our chat. Oh, um, we could, we could. It's a great topic. I so know. I, yeah, hopefully is. everyone takes something away from it. No, it's been it's been really good. And actually, I you know, it's been a while since I've been in practice, but I have had my head in liver disease for quite a while and even I've been reminded of a few things today and learned some new things too. So it's been a really great chat. The thing I thought we could finish on is just a quick overview of how you feel when you're practicing i guess you're you're in a really unique position because you see some some clients who really just want to take a conventional approach and you see some clients who want to take an integrative approach so what would be the sort of top 3 main differences that you see these two types of vets managing liver cases differently so i think uh that from the conventional viewpoint it's it's really getting to the the root of the problem that we're we're not doing. Where it's a very reactive model of practicing medicine. So we wait until they have liver disease and clinical signs. We're reacting to the elevated blood tests and we're treating the symptoms. If they're nauseous, we're giving them anti-nausea medication. They're dehydrated, we're giving them fluids. And we're just we're waiting and we're reacting. Whereas in the integrative space, we're talking about liver health. We're talking about the benefits of whole food nutrition. We're talking about the benefits of gut health. We might be doing screening blood tests and looking for early stages of disease that we can then proactively do something about. So it's, it's and it's so much more rewarding. It's preventative health. Mm. It's not reactive health. And that's absolutely where I see the big difference between conventional and, and integrative. And you see the pets as they walk in the door. I've got my my pets that are on whole food nutrition that are on managed by an integrative vet, whether it's me or something else, someone else, they come in, they've got a glossy coat, they're happy, mm. they've got energy. I see the ones that are on the whole, you know, on the kibble diets that um, they're just fed kibble and a bowl of water and they walk in and they've got dry coats, they look sluggish. Yeah. They just, you can just yeah. see it. Like it's, and yeah. it's, it's heartbreaking and I do try and not, I do try and compartmentalise and not take that energy on board. But it yeah. is just that that reactive versus proactive or preventative health is just it, it's just a whole different world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I completely agree with you. And I think one of the other sort of big differences that you've mentioned is that you don't tend to tolerate any um, elevated liver enzymes, mm. um, and you prefer to either investigate early or at least treat and support and then recheck. Um, so that would be another difference. And then it sounds like um, just really leaning into that diet as being almost a mainstay part of the therapy um, rather than using diet just to purely control like clinical signs um, would be another main sort of takeaway that I've taken from today's chat. Yeah, absolutely. So, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Wonderful. So, Nicole, is there anything else that you feel that we've left out that you want to get out there today? Um, now, Now's the chance and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, no, look, I think I've really enjoyed the chat. I think for me, if there's if there's the only thing that, um, that if people took one thing away from our chat today, it would be 
to think about the liver health and think about something that they could do to improve their pet's liver health. So just to have it as a thought process. So if their pets are a bit sluggish or if they're drinking a bit, just start thinking about the liver and think about how all the beautiful food we give them helps their liver function. So just a little bit more thought around the liver and what we can do in their day-to-day just to make those small changes that will improve their quality of life to reduce inflammation in the body and the toxic byproducts. So, yeah, just small changes for day-to-day really. Love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. I always love chatting to you. I think we always, you know, have such a healthy, long, detailed exploration of the topic that we're focusing on. And today's been no exception. Can't wait to get this podcast out there um, and spread the word and really looking forward to talking to you next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. Always love a chat. I'm very pleased to be part of um, the program with you guys. So very proud to be an ambassador. Looking forward to it. Oh, that's lovely. We are too. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. Make sure you tune in next month where we'll be talking to Professor Caroline Mansfield about a conventional vet's approach to liver health. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for individualised veterinary advice and listeners should ensure to seek advice from their pet's own veterinary professional.